91. The investment manager seeking opportunities in change. The world is constantly shaped by change and change brings opportunities, but opportunities are not always obvious. 91 was born in times of change and has seen past its distractions to seek real investment opportunities to help clients reach long-term investment goals. 91. Investing for a world of change. Find out more at 91.com. Welcome to the second episode in the third series of Future Thinking. I'm your host, Chris Lowley, the editor of CityWire Selector. Unwittingly, we've married two themes together from the first and second episodes of this run. Last time we heard about the rise of alternative diets, and this time we take a much closer look at the food industry itself. Geneviève Shah of Saracen Partners is a man I've leaned on a lot to learn about the food tech industry, and he never fails to disappoint. Today, the co-lead of Saracen's Food and Agriculture Opportunities Fund outlines what trends he's watching, the role of fast food, and whether we can get to a world without meat. As always, if you like the show, have any comments or suggestions, I would be happy to hear them, so please make yourself known. A lesser journalist would encourage you to sink your teeth into this week's episode. Uh, Who am I kidding? Let's get stuck in. So I'm joined today by the lead manager of the Saracen Food and Agriculture Opportunities Fund, Geneve Shah. Geneve, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, great to speak with you uh, today. Well, we've spoken a lot in the past. We've spoken over the last few months and towards the end of last year about the changing world of food. And food is a hugely important element, as we were saying before we started recording. It feeds into a lot of life. Everyone has to eat. And we are seeing new ways that that is being improved in efficiency, the ways that people are trying to cut down waste and also sort of technological advancement in that space. So that's what we were hoping to cover today. So, as I said, we've discussed that at length. But if we can, I mean, this is starting as broad as possible, really. How are advancements in this area changing both what's going to happen for the consumer and for diners who are going out to eat? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting area, Chris. So I think one of the things where I'm most fascinated by is um, the whole changing nature of the types of protein that we're consuming as as, uh, diners in restaurants. Um, I think you're seeing a a huge growth in uh, sort of alternative protein, as it's called, Um, you know, traditional animal protein is is a is a very big market globally, one point four trillion dollars. Um, the alternative protein market is is maybe five or six billion dollars. So it's it's a tiny element, yet it's had so much press profile. And the reasons for that is because consumers are much more aware of uh, the environmental impact of the food that they're consuming uh, and animal welfare. Um, and I think this is what is driving this this growth in this this particular category Um, and there's a lot of technology behind this so you know there's two or three different types of alternative protein you've got you know plant-based which is um, essentially using uh, soy or uh, other sort of plants and and, uh, vegetables and fruits things like coconut even um, to create and recreate the texture of meat Um, but then there's this sort of smaller side of, of sort of alternative protein, which is cellular meat or cultured meat. And this is, this is the real futuristic view, vision of where protein could come from, where we are growing uh, protein in a lab using cells from animals um, in sort of, you know, uh, grow, using growth media. And, and the reason this is particularly exciting is this year has seen a real inflection where, with Singapore being the first country in the world to um, give a regulatory approval for cellular meat to be sold in restaurants. And in fact, uh, that was done 
earlier this year with a with a sort of mock uh, steak piece in in a restaurant in Singapore. Um, I'd say it's not mass market yet, so the cost of that technology needs to come down, as we've seen with many other technologies in in the solar panel industry with electric vehicles, etc. It takes takes time, but the speed at which that can happen is a lot faster than most investors always think about. So I, I think, you know, we've already crossed one hurdle in terms of regulatory in one country. Um, obviously, that, that needs to still progress in the rest of the world, and we need costs to come down. But, but I think that's definitely one area that, that I'm particularly fascinated by. It's a really interesting area for me as well, because I've seen, I mean, you've probably seen as well, there was the clip, I think it was on Dutch TV, where they fed experts a, a lab-grown burger. This must have been 10 years ago or so, but it cost close, I was going to say thousands, even hundreds of thousands of euros to make that and bringing that price point down. I know there has been huge acceleration, but it's still, like you said, it's a very capital intensive process. Do you have any timeline of when it would become much easier to mass produce? Because we hear about groups like Impossible, teaming up with fast food chains, which is still a step away from being mass market. But do you have any idea when it could get to a level where it competes with traditional protein? Yeah, that the uh, company that you were talking about, Moza Meat in 2013, yeah, that they they sort of, uh, it was costing them, you know, well over, you know, $200,000 to produce a single patty. Um, I think the costs have have come down dramatically, actually. So today, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, closer to several hundred dollars, um, if not um, coming almost below a hundred dollars. So quite, not quite at the level which can be afforded by, you know, your average household. Um, uh, I, I think I think the the timelines, we're probably looking at five to 10 years. When, when I listen to what some of the venture capital startup companies in this space are talking about in the, in the cost of the, the growth media is, is the single largest cost. Um, there's also a lot of technical processes, engineering processes around, um, there's a term called scaffolding, which is the way that you create the, the texture in a patty. All, all of that also has um, a sort of a, a cost. Uh, the capital investment is through equipment, et cetera. But, but yes, I, I think we're looking at about five to 10 years away before uh, we get to a point where it will become a mass, mass market product. I think we could go on a slight tangent here or even I was going to say a wormhole in the sense that this this is all tied up within the theme of sort of increased vegetarianism and veganism we've seen those the number of people who identify as vegetarian or vegan rise massively even in I mean my extended family is Italian and the famously uh, meat eaters I mean that's a massive generalization I might edit that out myself but in terms of the way that we have seen these trends change is that feeding into other art parts of the food technology industry as well the fact that people are less reliant on meat more open to new sources of meat and meat substitutes yeah absolutely i think um you know we're seeing uh that sort of ripple effect from changing consumer tastes and diets um you know the the drivers for it are, are multiple so you've got you know people much more aware of animal welfare much more aware of the environmental footprint of uh, traditional animal protein. Um, so if you, you know, take the example of, um, you know, going as uh, stretching out as e- even into um, uh, people eating more fruits and vegetables in order to improve their health, especially in a post-COVID type environment where we're much more aware of that. I think that's having um, an interesting, there's a couple of other sort of technological areas. So one, one is 
controlled environment agriculture. So this is growing leafy greens, microgreens, you know, high value fruits and vegetables inside a warehouse where you don't have pests attacking them, um, those produce. So, so you don't need to use pesticides, which is you know, fabulous because you don't have the issues of you know, pesticides running off into rivers and, and, and killing wild you know, fish and, and animals. Um, you're, you're using a lot less land. Um, so there's a, a much lower uh, amount of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, you're using LEDs to replicate sunlight. And in fact, actually, the, the sort of controlled environment farms can really then precisely grow uh, those fruits and vegetables to have even better characteristics, you know, better taste, better nutritional profile. So that's one area. And then the other area is um, thinking around, um, you know, personalized nutrition and, and sort of adapting the profile of our foods for the right protein content, omega-3 content, or the right vitamin content um, for our own individual needs. And, and I think as, as people become uh, more flexitarian, eat less meat, eat less, and eat more fruit and vegetables, I think that's where we'll start to personalize the foods that we eat as well. So you can see how, you know, it sort of has these multiple knock-on effects through food technology across the whole of the chain. Bridging slightly because um, I know a few people who are vegan and they, they hate being put into that bracket of they can only eat beans and pulses. They actually still want the, the fast food equivalents, but in a vegan format. And, and like I've said to you before, and we've talked about this, the fast food industry is an area that I'm fascinated in. And it also seems to be an area that they are seeing a lot of innovation. We've spoken previously about the likes of Burger King moving perhaps to a almost human-less environment where you could drive up to a diner having ordered on your app get it out of a hot locker rather than actually having to speak to someone and already have paid for it all is that or am i being naive is is that such an area of innovation or are there other areas that are actually being more innovative than the uh, fast food or, or quick service restaurant industry yeah, I think I think um, that's you know sort of the the physical nature and the, the how a restaurant looks and feels is is definitely one area of innovation and disruption. Um, a lot of that's because we've wanted to have less human contact during the pandemic, and so that's you know forcing a lot of these large chains, QSR chains, to think about drive-throughs, think about those lockers, as you mentioned. Um, but, I, but I think there's, there's another side of this as well, which is people want um, a sort of upmarket fast food as well. Um, and things like food courts and, and markets are actually springing up in urban centres uh, where, where they're a lot more artisan, where there's a bit of discovery around the types of cuisine. Um, if you think about the drivers behind this, a lot of the purchasing power over the next sort of 10, 20 years is going to migrate from the sort of... Um, baby boomer generation to the sort of the, the Gen Z's of today, the 22 to 35 year olds. Um, so that shift in purchasing power means that their sort of values and behaviors are actually becoming more important. And what do they want? They want healthy food, they want environmental, uh, positive type fast food. They're curious about cuisine and they're prepared to pay up for an interesting concept. Um, so if you think about these sorts of food markets in, in the UK, in London, you've got things like Box Park or Seven Dials and Curbs. Uh, you've got um, in, in New York and Williamsburg, North Third Street Market. Um, you've got chains like Chloe 
which is sort of a vegan version of Shake Shack, um, which has got about 20 locations, you know, started out as a US concept and has come to London. Um, so I think there's, there's um, a, another one that's very well, well sort of known as Sweetgreen, which is a, you know, LA based sort of fast casual concepts all about healthy salads. And their whole mission is um, to use food made from scratch using locally sourced ingredients from farmers that use regenerative agriculture techniques. This is not mass market fast food by any sense uh, or any stretch, but, but I think it's um, sort of a, a growing area and where I think uh, sweet green, for example, look to be carbon neutral by 2027. That's quite a, a you know, strong aspiration and allies their brand to exactly what those sort of Gen Z consumers want. Is there still a, a premium added to these elements though because we, we've talked there about quite innovative quite high-end or moving towards high-end material but there's still a lot of people who will be priced out of that market is there some way and apologies because this does go back to our original point about when this has mass market appeal but is there any way to cater for sort of the lower income needs as well and bring everybody up all at once or is it going to be very much a gradual process I think I think there there will be it'll be a, a bit of a gradual process. So you sort of need to see um, people be able to afford, but also be willing to to experiment and try different types of foods that they're not perhaps used to. Um, so I think I think um, that there's it's 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 more of a process over time rather than perhaps any particular mass market QSRs dramatically changing. Um, they, they have added to their menus, um, the likes of McDonald's and uh, KFC and Burger King, et cetera, have sh shifted their menus over the last five or 10 years to allow themselves to open up to uh, a wider array of demographics and, and types of cuisine. But, but I, I feel it's more of a gradual process. One thing that's very important in this is, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, is not focusing just on that end user, end consumer. What do I get? How do I change? Because as you've said to me before, the, the supply chain is hugely important. And we've talked previously about the actual origin of this food. And smart agriculture is another area that's hugely interesting and, and seeing a lot of developments such as precision farming. Sorry, I should try and say a word I can actually pronounce rather than go very precise farming. Advanced pesticides, like you mentioned, such as the ones that wouldn't be running off and ruin, ruining local wildlife. And also we've seen, for example, even groups like John Deere, which you would imagine to be sort of a very old world traditional um, agricultural vehicle manufacturer moving into the technological age. So what are the limitations here and, and are there positives and negatives to that? So I imagine it's going to displace a lot of sort of low skilled laborers, but improve the efficiency of the crop that's being produced. Yeah, Chris, you've you've hit all the all important points there. I think, oh, excellent! I think Thanks. Seeing... Finish. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Sorry. <laughs> what we're seeing, absolutely, what we're seeing is um, the use of um, uh, data uh, platforms being built, where farmers can really understand what uh, combination of farm inputs, everything from seeds to fertilizer to, to uh, biopesticides, are, are appropriate for their particular crop in their particular field. So. Um, it's a lot more prescriptive, precise, as that's why it's called precision ag. Um, and, and I think there's, there's um, the, the limitations really are much more around the farmer's willingness to change and, and they're just, just their inertia, really. 
Um, so the, you know, if you think about the average age of a farmer in the US is, is you know, 58 years old. So really it's, it's the new younger generation who are much more willing to use data and understand and partner with um, companies like John Deere and others, startups, uh, apps, et cetera, out there that, that are you know, sort of trying to formalize and, and codify what were processes that were just handed down, usually generation to generation by word of mouth. Um, also, I mean, the, 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 some of this does require a farmer to have sufficient scale to make that upfront investment. Um, and they need to be in the right types of produce. Um, grains, you know, in particular work very well for precision agriculture. Um, certain, you know, sort of legumes and vegetables, it's, it's a little bit more uh, complicated. So, you know, the, the types of machinery are much smaller, um, but that, that hasn't meant that there aren't startups out there trying to bring that um, in, in, into place. I'd say the, the sort of benefits are, are also from things, not just environmental um, and greenhouse gas emission reduction, but also, um, you know, reducing food waste. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a huge area that, that the whole food system needs to think about. Um, and in particular, on-farm uh, food waste is, is something that isn't always thought about. We think about food waste in the home or in the supply chain, but actually on farms, in, in especially in emerging markets, countries where they don't necessarily have the storage, the chilled cold storage warehouses, etc. A lot of produce ends up being wasted after it's been harvested. Well, you so, gave the example also of when in the emerging markets, the infrastructure around the actual delivery means that good food could spoil in transit as well. So it's almost a sort of a knock-on effect of if you get the system around the farm right, that could aid everybody along the chain. Sorry, I, I jumped in on top of that. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. So, so certain countries, you know, you don't even have stable electricity. Um, you don't have, you know, good roads. Um, the weather can all of a sudden make it, you know, a longer journey by truck from the farm to the market. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of challenges that, that we take for granted in, in the sort of developed world, which, which exist in, in those countries that, that are big food producers, not just for domestic consumption but also exports to us and we're reliant on on that supply chain so so yes i think i think that's um that's a way that we can reduce food waste uh, to give you an idea of the scale of the food waste problem um a, a recent wwf uh, piece of work in july this year estimated that um two and a half billion tons of food are wasted per annum and that accounts for for about um 10% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so that, that on wasted a, food. So that two point. Wow, that's incredible. It's, yeah, it's, if if it, if, uh, if food waste were a country, it would be the third largest emitter behind um, you know US and China. So so it's a it's a massive problem that that we we you know a lot of attention's been focused on uh, sort of greenhouse gas emissions in the automotive sector and transportation sector. In, in the energy sector, but but I think the food system has equally an important role to play. Well, there's that, because I'm not going to end on a, a low note, but there's always that quote about the cows, the methane that they emit on a dairy farm is more than if you had stuck, a, I think it was, somebody said it was the equivalent to a three-day traffic jam outside of Shanghai is just sort of an average US dairy farm. But 
as we see trends change, and I mean, a beef and dairy farm is probably under most pressure because we are seeing less consumption of meat and also replacement of milks, for example. We're seeing a lot of the likes of Oatly and Alpro and those groups coming in. So it seems like there are pressure points all along. But to end with the big question, we started with a big question. Is it going to be more of an evolution or a revolution for the for the food industry to move to this sort of new, greener, more considered environment with improved efficiency and, and perhaps even better practice? I, 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 you're, I think that's exactly what all participants in the chain are trying to achieve. So if you think about um, the EU Green Deal and, and sort of the agenda that's being set in, in the US with uh, transforming its economy towards a much greener, um, greener set of activities and behaviours. When, when we look at that on the on the sort of food system, I think farmers are going to have to start thinking about um, reducing, you know, the methane emissions through changing feed additives that they have in, in the animal feed that they give to livestock animals. A company like DSM has come up with a, a wonderful product called Bavare, which which does exactly that, and that's just been approved in in Brazil and Chile and they're waiting for EU and New Zealand approval and, 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 and in due time that, that will also be approved in the US. Um, and that's a very low cost, simple way for a farmer to, to immediately improve the, the emissions profile from, from, their, uh, from their livestock. Um, so I think um, the, 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 it's going to be both evolution and revolution. I think the revolution will come um, in certain uh, sort of aspects of the consumer side. So you know, consumer taste changing and, and changing our protein content, reducing the meat consumption, as we talked about at the beginning, um, trying alternative proteins. Um, I think we'll see a huge amount of investments going into um, controlled environment agriculture, as I mentioned, so these vertical farms. Um, and then, yeah, I think, uh, you know, food manufacturers all have put out a lot of ambitious uh, goals and targets, um, 2030 or 2035, to reduce the, the impact that they have, um, so, you know, using suppliers that are using regenerative agricultural techniques. So, so I think it's, it's going to um, be a bit of evolution in certain parts of the chain and revolution in others. Um, and it really depends on uh, the type of participant in that whole food chain, really. Um, certain ones, farmers do tend to be a little bit more conservative, do require a lot more convincing. Um, you know, they, they need to see the benefits um, and uh, they do operate on, or generally tend to operate on very low margins. For a, for a big FMCG brand or a big, you know, sort of QSR chain um, or even your small, you know, sort of startups, um, I think it's it's a lot more easier for them to be able to make these changes um, in, when it turn, when it comes to the food system and its environmental footprint. Janif Shah, thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me today. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Ninety one, the investment manager seeking opportunities in change. The world is constantly shaped by change, and change brings opportunities but opportunities are not always obvious. 91 was born in times of change and has seen past its distractions to seek real investment opportunities to help clients reach long-term investment goals. 91, investing for a world of change. Find out more at 91.com.